Well, good morning. My name is Rick, and I'm absolutely privileged to be one of your elders here at CCF. Three questions that we're going to be addressing in our passage here in Mark 8. So I'm going to give you those up front because I don't have any slides. If you're a note taker and you want to jot these down, the three questions that we'll discuss in our passage. Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, what did he come to do? And number three, what does this mean for us, for the church, for you, me, for believers, for followers of Jesus? So who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does this mean for us? So we're going to jump right in. I love expository preaching. I love that we do that here at CCF. And when I was asked to preach today, I found it challenging, actually, uh, to jump into the middle of this text without any context or background. So I feel it's necessary to do just that, to give some context. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a quick summary of the first eight chapters of Mark. I'm going to go somewhat quickly, and I'm going to highlight, (laughs) not two to three years, no, I assure you. (laughs) So I'm going to highlight a lot of things, some I'm going to dive a little deeper into, um, but you're welcome to jot down notes or try to follow along in your Bible or, or just listen. Uh, but the context is important to our passage and to our first question about who is Jesus. So chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark's gospel. He starts, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes on to a quote from Isaiah of one who would be crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The actual verse comes from Isaiah 43, and it's pretty revealing. It states, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert a highway for our God. This was talking about John the Baptist, the one who's preparing the way. And we see John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the the Jordan. In verse 10, It says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus was then taken to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. We're going to come back to this. But it goes well. He does not cave to temptation. Jesus starts his ministry which was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Next, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, which is technically a big lake. I've been there. You can get some scale. It is a big lake, but uh, it's going to play into some context of the things you're going to see happen here back and forth. And he calls his first disciples, Simon, who is later renamed Peter. It's the one from our passage today. And his brother, Andrew. And then shortly after, James and his brother, John, all whom are fishermen. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. And they left their families and jobs and followed him. Don't miss this, church. They left their families and their jobs to follow Jesus. Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath at a local synagogue. And a man with an unclean spirit comes in and he outs him. He says, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Very specific. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus cast it out. Obviously, they were then all amazed. So they questioned amongst themselves, saying, quote, What is this, a new teaching 
with authority. He, Jesus, commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So now we have demons not only obeying everything he says, but even they are acknowledging that he's the Holy One of God, which you will see this is indeed a pattern. Verse 28 says, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee, which sounds about right. Then Mark tells us that Jesus went to Simon and Andrew's house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, which in turn led to people bringing all sorts of others who were sick or demon-possessed, and he heals and casts out demons all evening. But as in verse 34 says, quote, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus then gets up super early. It says while it was still dark, and he goes off to a desolate place to pray. They finally find him and say, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Chapter 2 starts. Mark tells us, Jesus cleanses a leper. By the unconventional and that time unthinkable way, he touched him. Rather than making Jesus unclean, Jesus, by touching the leper, made the leper clean. Jesus touched the leper. What a gracious Savior, church. One who touches us who are unclean and makes us clean. Thank you, Lord. Jesus heals a paralytic. You know the story. The paralytic's friends get him there to the house where Jesus is, and it's already packed, which makes sense. They can't even get in, let alone get close. So they improvise, they head on up, and they start demolishing the guy's roof. And to be completely honest, my first thought was this is probably not the best pastors to use when asking for volunteers to be host homes for small groups. <laughs> but then the fact that this guy's house and what happens here is actually mentioning God's word and what he got to see and experience. Maybe this is the best passage. But I digress. So they make a hole in the roof, and they lower their friend down on his bed so Jesus could heal him. Except there's another whopper here. It says that Jesus sees their faith, and then he speaks to the paralytic and says what? Son, your sins are forgiven. <coughs> Insert uproar and people getting uncomfortable. They start to ask a great question in verse 7. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer is no one. So in essence, Jesus just claimed to be God. The paralytic is healed. He takes up his bed and goes home, as Jesus told him to do. We're going to come back to this story later. Jesus calls Levi, which is Matthew, the tax collector, to be a disciple. Insert another uproar by the scribes and Pharisees. These guys were the worst, these tax collectors. But Jesus said, verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we know who are sinners. All of us including those Pharisees. Read Romans 3, but let's keep moving. Jesus' question about fasting. It says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He claims to be our bridegroom. See Ephesians 5 and one of my favorite books in the Bible that points to Christ in the gospel story, the book of Ruth. The Pharisees get mad about Jesus and his disciples. His disciples are plugging heads of grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus said that he is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, the very next passage in Mark has Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath again, healing a man with a withered hand. Insert another uproar by the Pharisees, who not only don't rejoice in the healing or the miracle they just witnessed, but they went out 
and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, who they pretty much hated, to figure out how to destroy him. The crowd started to get so large that Jesus told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Verse 10, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. At the end of chapter 3, the scribes came down from Jerusalem calling Jesus Satan. That, he must be the, that must be the only reason why he can cast out demons. Chapter 4, again, huge crowds gather. He tells them a parable of a farmer and sowing seeds and how the results are different based on where the seeds fall and different types of soil they land on. Jesus actually takes a break here. In between, it says Jesus explains why he uses parables. And he actually uses a quote from Isaiah 6. I encourage you to read that and study it on your own time. You might find it interesting why he uses parables or why he says so. But then he goes back and explains the previous parable, explaining that the sower sows the word. The one on the path represents the people with a hardened heart. Satan comes, immediately snatches away what they hear. On the rocky soil, those that receive it with joy but have no root in themselves. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of that word, immediately they fall away. Then there's the thorns, the cares of the world. They choke it, and it proves unfruitful. And then the good soil, those that hear the word, they receive it, and it bears fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. He goes on with some more farming parables, then moves to the mustard seed parable. And then Mark says that he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. He left the crowds and jumped into a boat with his disciples, and there were some other boats around too. So they take out to head to the other side. Chaos ensues. There's a huge storm. The, the, the disciples are there, and they're starting to freak out. Jesus, as Mark said, was way back in the back on a cushion, sleeping. Disciples woke him up and said, we're going to die. Jesus rebukes the wind and speaks to the sea. Peace, be still. And that's what happened. And Jesus said to the disciples, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So were they calm and fearless? Nope. Verse 41 says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5. They land on the other side of the sea, which again is a lake. There he meets the demon-possessed tomb-dweller guy of the country of the Gerasenes. Crazy powerful guy, rips chains, breaks shackles. He's in agony, cutting himself with rocks. Isn't it interesting that Satan and his evil forces always want to destroy that which is created in the image of God? Something to think about, maybe for another sermon. It turns out that this was multiple demons, legion by name. And when he saw Jesus from afar, verse 6, he ran and fell down before him. Wow, so here's a guy no one wants to mess with who is super strong and being tormented day and night and he sees Jesus and he comes running and falls down before him. In verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Yet another example of demons proclaiming who Jesus is. 
Then he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Then they begged Jesus again to allow them to go into the nearby herd of pigs. So he, Jesus, gave them permission. And off they went. And roughly 2,000 pigs rushed into the sea and drowned themselves. Again, death and destruction as a result. They had to ask. It says they actually begged. So who has the authority over the principalities? Similar to Satan in the book of Job, asking God permission before he does anything to Job. It's a crazy situation, but be encouraged, church. This is the God that we serve, the one who is in complete control and has complete authority over everything. So they get back, and they land at the other side, cross the lake again. Another huge crowd is there to greet them. Here comes Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue. He begs Jesus to come and lay his hands on a sick daughter who's almost dead. Jesus agrees, and while pushing through the crowds, another lady who's been bleeding for 12 years and could not be helped by any physician decides if she could only touch the hem of Jesus, the great physician, she would be healed. She does, and she is. Jesus stops and calls her out. And says, quote, daughter, your faith has made you well. Think about it, church. The former outcast is called daughter by the king of kings. While Jesus was still speaking to the woman, some people from Jairus' house came up and told Jairus, your daughter's dead. There's no need to bug Jesus anymore. But Jesus overhears this and tells Jairus, quote, do not fear, only believe. He told everyone else to stay behind except Peter, James, and John. And they go to the house, and Jesus raises the girl from the dead. Chapter 6, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown. You might remember this in our Luke study, except it was in Luke chapter 4. It was actually way back in COVID years. <laughs> remember, he taught at the synagogue. We opened the scroll of Isaiah. It would have been Isaiah 61 in our Bibles. And he started to read. And what did he read? He read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped there at a comma. And he closed up the scroll and said, quote, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Mark's account we read, they took offense at him. In Luke's account we saw that after a while, all the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they were so upset by the things that he said and some of the things he taught, they take him out and they want to throw him off a cliff. But he passed through their midst. Despite all this, Mark comments that Jesus still laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Next, Jesus sends out the 12, two by two, and gives them authority. He tells them that there's going to be places where people receive you and others where they won't. They, the disciples, preach repentance, cast out demons, and healed a bunch of people. Next, Mark tells us about the death of John the Baptist. And then the disciples come back, and they, they and Jesus try to jump in a boat to get away from the crowds to rest. But the crowds, the crowds see them, and they see where they're going. And they met them there. Mark's gospel actually says they ran on foot and beat them there. This is where after teaching, 
and having compassion on them and teaching them for a while, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and he feeds 5,000. And they all ate and were satisfied, it said. So much food that they collected 12 baskets, full baskets of leftovers. Another huge miracle. He sends the disciples back into the boat and off they go, heading across to the other side again. While Jesus stays back, he's dismissing the crowds, and then he heads up to pray, spend time with the Father. It's nighttime and the disciples are struggling because of a strong headwind. And here comes Jesus, walking on the water. Jesus walks on water. And we know from the Matthew account, so did Peter, until he started to sink when he doubted. But Jesus caught him. And when Jesus gets in the boat, the wind's calm. And the Bible says, starting in verse 51, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They landed at Gennesaret. The people recognized Jesus and ran all over the whole region. And they brought the sick for Jesus to heal. And he did so. Chapter 7. Next, Mark says he heals a Gentile's woman's demon-possessed daughter after he saw the woman's faith without even being there or touching the daughter. Then Jesus heals a deaf man with a speech impediment. And in verse 37 of chapter 7, it says, quote, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Next, Mark highlights that Jesus feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and a few small fish. Again, like the 5,000, all ate and were satisfied. They collected seven full baskets of leftovers. you got to love Mark and his details. They weren't baskets. They were full baskets. They didn't sit on the grass. It was the green grass. Then Jesus heals a blind man in Bethsaida. Except this is unique, and it fits perfectly into the narrative in that he heals him in two stages. Jesus takes the blind man by the hand, and he leads, them, he leads him out of the village, which is a great picture if you think about it. Jesus leading him out of the village. First, he spits on his eyes, and he lays his hand on him and asks, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. You see, church, anytime you see an anomaly like this in Scripture, there is a reason. I assure you that the one who created everything and the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power is not struggling here like he needed to take two swings at it. You see, this was pointing to what was happening and what the rest of Mark would reveal. His disciples' eyes would finally see that he was indeed the Messiah, but still not clearly enough to understand the fact that the Messiah must suffer and die. It was not until after the resurrection that the disciples' eyes would see clearly when it would all make sense. So, we've arrived at our text now you have the context leading up to our passage this morning. So let's pick it up in our text. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? You see him, right? What's the word on the street? 
they say, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Now, having reviewed all the previous chapters of Mark, I ask you, church, is this not a softball question? Right? One he should easily hit out of the park. And here comes Peter. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In the Matthew account, it says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Who's doing the revealing? It's not Peter. It's God the Father. And like Peter and the blind man we just read about leading up to this passage, we all need to be touched by Jesus in order to see. We don't see on our own. We have no spiritual sight without divine intervention. So now we have our answer to our first question. Who is Jesus? And like Peter does here, we should be quick and confident to set the record straight when people ask us, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. And the only, singular and specific, the only Savior of this world. He's the Messiah. So now we have the proclamation. This last section represents a major shift in Mark, or as one commentator described, as the high water mark of the disciples' training. And I agree with William McDonald when he says, This passage brings us to the heart of discipleship. It is perhaps the most neglected area in Christian thought and practice today. So now that the confession has been made about who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, then we pick it up with answering our next question. What did he come to do? Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus says, Now that you understand that I am indeed the Christ, the Son of God, let me tell you what I came to do. I came to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. But notice that he never stops there, church. There are three times in Mark's gospel that Jesus says the exact same thing. It's here, then again in chapter 9, starting in verse 30, and then again in chapter 10, starting in verse 32. And all of them, he does not stop with death, but he includes the resurrection, and specifically that it would happen three days later. In every single one. I don't know how you speak more plainly than that. And in all three times, they don't understand. They don't get it. So let's pick it up here in our text. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Wow. Can you imagine just how quickly this thing went sideways? Peter confesses him to be the Christ. And two to three verses later, Peter pulls Jesus aside, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and rebukes him. It's shocking. But in some ways, church, don't don't we do the same thing? You see, Peter is fine with Jesus being the Messiah. After all, we just read about it this Christmas season, Isaiah 9, 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
They wanted that government to be upon his shoulders. Psalm 2, starting in verse 8. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And how about that rest of the passage of Isaiah 61 that Jesus read in Nazareth? You see, they wanted the post-comma portion, which says, quote, and the day of vengeance of our God, which will happen, church. But this is the already and the not yet that Pastor Eric talks about that they don't understand. This is why in the passage in Isaiah, I drew a little cross above the comma in my Bible where Jesus stopped. You see, they were saying, come on, Lord, bring the vengeance. It's time to bring judgment and justice. Bring down the divine hammer on these pagan Romans. They're persecuting us. But does this sound so unfamiliar, church? Any similarities to today? We talk about administrations. We talk about government. We talk about open persecution and targeting Christians. Property taxes are going up. Inflation. I've got bills to pay. We've got rulers in a culture that openly mock and reject God's word. Again, Peter is fine with Jesus being the Messiah we read about here. But you see, Peter and the other disciples missed, skipped, or ignored the other passages. And they're all there. Like Isaiah 53, which actually our kids are memorizing in Kidman. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And what about all of Psalm 22, which is basically the entire account of Jesus' crucifixion? And there's more. Or what about the one of the voice crying in the wilderness and preparing the way for the Lord? Remember what John the Baptist says when he first sees Jesus? John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes, the, takes away the sin of the world. We just sang about it. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like the blind man, they began to see, but not entirely clear. They didn't understand the suffering servant part of Christ. They liked the coming king part because that's what they wanted. That they could not fathom the suffering servant part. A word of caution, church. Be careful. I need to be careful of judging Peter and the other disciples. Aren't we quick to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, and then sometimes when it comes to the details of our own lives, we say, no, Lord. Let me tell you how it should be. Not that way. No, I don't think so. Also, remember that unlike the disciples at this time, we have the advantage of being on this side of the cross and resurrection. And having the entirety of Scripture in our hands and in our laps? The question is, church, do we know it? Do we really take the time to put in the work, to do the hard study in our Word? Or do we just focus on passages that we like, but not the other ones that are tough, especially in the society and cultural norms and the pressures that we have today? Do we skip the passages like in John 15, where Jesus says, if they persecuted me... They will also persecute you. Or what, what about the ones we're unpacking today, where we're called to pick up our cross? Do we run to Scripture for a deep dive into the situations of life and for truth and guidance and for answers? Or do we go somewhere else? Do we know what it says about the things that we deal with in life, about marriage, 
and money, about our jobs and our friends. What about parenting? What about parenting? We get to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, and it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Wow. It sounds like all the time. And that if I'm required to teach, I should probably know the words he commanded. This also sounds exactly what, what Jesus did. His whole ministry with the disciples. When he got up, he was walking by the way. But what about when we get to the point where we need to further raise up our children or discipline them? We see Psalm 103.13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Maybe we like that verse, but what about when we get to Proverbs 13.24, which does not say, spare the rod, spoil the child. Last time I checked, I believe that's attributed to some poem. The Bible actually says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And there's that diligent word again. Do we dig further into scripture to see what else it says? Do we see that this ties into the Father's love for us? Like in the New Testament in Hebrews 12, starting verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? A rhetorical question which this passage in Hebrews is actually citing, Proverbs 3. Or later on in that same passage when it talks about how it is so that we may share his holiness. And later it yields the peace, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is just a small snippet of one example. But do we do the hard work, church? Do we know it? Do we know our word? But leave that aside. Leave the blogs aside the podcast aside, the social media aside, church, if we go to the bookstall before we go to our Bible, we're in trouble. And no, I'm not against books. I love books. They can be a wonderful resource in your study, and I have many of the books in the bookstall in my own personal library at home. In fact, I got four new books for Christmas, one for my in-laws and three I bought for myself. So <laughs> Merry Christmas to me. I know. The point is what? The books in the bookstore are only good if they align with what's in the Bible. And the only way we can test things is to know the Bible. And like the bring-ins in Acts 17, 11, we have to search the scriptures to see if they're true or not. The answers are here, church. Do we put in the work to find those answers? Do we seek the Lord in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and hearts, and then do the thorough study of his word, to dig deep through the whole Bible before we look anywhere else? And please, please, don't for a minute think I'm preaching at you and not to myself, because I am. I can assure you, each of these questions apply directly to me each and every day. But let's be honest. This response, Peter's, what's going on here, is not necessarily uncommon. Some of us were, and some of you still are, maybe the same way, in that you think, or you say it in this way. You say, I'm not good with the cross part, because that implies I need a savior. That would mean that there's something wrong with me. Something I can't do on my own. Something I can't solve from within. Yeah, but Rick, the internet tells me. Social media tells me. Culture tells me. The talk show hosts tell me. 
There's nothing wrong with me. I'm amazing. I'm powerful. I can find strength within that can lead to happiness, joy, and solve all my problems. I don't possibly need a savior. See, the truth is, the bloodshed and brutality of the cross highlights the cost of our sin, the rightful punishment for our sin, the nakedness of Adam and Eve that needed to be covered, the lamb's blood on the doorposts, the repeated sacrifices that were required throughout the entire Old Testament church. It was a bloody mess, and by design. It gives us a graphic representation of just how serious our sin is and the penalty that is required for it. You see, the wages of sin is not to do more good deeds or say more prayers or more year-end charity giving or more volunteering. It's death. And that must be atoned for or else there is truly no hope. John 14, 6, Jesus says in reference to himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did you catch it? There is one truth. There is one way to actually have life. And there is only one way to obtain it. And that is through the precious blood of Jesus and faith in him and the acknowledgement that, of that truth, repentance of your sins, and your necessity of a Savior. And do you see that that's the complete opposite of our culture? Where they say there is no truth, and now there's many truths. It's your truth, and it's my truth. There's many paths to God versus Jesus. Exclusionary, exclusionary, exclusionary. Only Jesus. You see, this is something that I came to realize in my preparation. What Peter was trying to keep from happening by rebuking Jesus is actually what Peter needed more than anything else. And the same applies to you and me. If the divine must does not happen in verse 31, where it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, then there is no atonement for sin. And all of this is meaningless. We might as well go home. It's not the government or taxes or fill in the blank that's the real problem. It is the sin problem, the spiritual, that far outweighs any other problems in our lives and in this world. It's emphasized. Remember, back in our story of the healing the paralytic, when they lowered him through the roof, what did Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Because that's the real healing, the real need, the greater importance. Yes, Jesus heals him physically, but the far more important and of eternal importance is the spiritual healing that he and all of us need. It's a heart issue. And we don't need a cleaning or a polishing. We need a new heart. And if Jesus took the easy way out, the road with no pain and no suffering and no death, it doesn't matter what happens to our physical bodies, if they're healed or not. It doesn't matter what happens to the Romans or the things of this world. We would remain eternally separated from God in hell for all of eternity. It was his love that drove him to that cross. You see, Jesus mentioned the suffering, death, and don't forget the resurrection. As Pastor Eric highlighted just a few sermons ago when we were wrapping up uh, our, our sermon series in Luke, yes, we celebrate the birth of our kinsman redeemer, which we just celebrated at, at Christmas time, and his life and his death, but there has to be a resurrection. If not, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
We are of all people most to be pitied. So work that passage backwards. If we don't want to be in our sins, we have to have faith in the one that pays the penalty because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. There has to be a perfect sacrifice, not us. So faith in Christ is futile if he has not been raised. And he can't be raised unless he dies. Jesus had to die in order to pay the penalty for you and me and not stay dead. A perfect sinless sacrifice was required. The Son of God had to die. And why? He was the only perfect sinless one that could provide the atonement required for the sin problem that we all have. You see, it was their sin problem that they needed to be rescued from that far outweighed any Roman issue. So Jesus rebukes Peter. Because in the same vein as as Satan's temptation in the wilderness, it's the offer of the crown without the cross. The promise of a kingdom without pain. The easy way out. No suffering. And Jesus says, no way. And do you know why he says no way? And why he does not take the easy road? Scripture tells us, starting in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. It is because God so loved that he did not take the easy way and did not yield to temptation. Praise God. So we've come to the problem. The last part of verse 33. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Church, is this not the dividing line between godliness and godlessness? One of the clear characteristics of, of a Christian is that we should be deeply concerned about the things of God and not the things of man. Godlessness is preoccupied with the things of this world, with money, with fame, with influence, with status, with stuff. This verse acts as a mirror, church. We need to look at it and ask the personal questions and then be honest. I need to say to myself, Rick, where is your heart? What are your desires and concerns of this life focused on? Is it the things of God or the things of this world? Do I care more about what God thinks than my friends, people online, my co-workers, my unbelieving family members, what I drive, where I live, my title at work? Remember the parable of the seeds and the sower that we reviewed in Mark 4. Isn't it interesting that two of the four deal with things, one directly of the world and the other one talking about persecution and tribulation coming from the world, is they don't, they just don't go well. Remember the rocky soil? The word is received with joy and they endure it for a while. Then what happens? What does it say? When tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Don't we see that tribulation and persecution coming even today on account of the word, the truth? Simple truths of the gospel. We see it all over, the, all over the place, all over the world. What about the thorns? Directly, cares of the world. They choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 
It was a problem then, church, and it still is today. We need to set our minds on the things of God. This is where Jesus addresses the final question. What does he expect of you and me? Verse 34, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So three things. Deny yourself. I feel like I don't even need to unpack this and how countercultural this statement is right now. Especially when the world is about fulfilling your every need. Do what feels right. Whatever makes you happy. Carpe diem. YOLO. It goes on and on. Set your minds on the things of God. Make him and the things of God your passion. Deny yourself. Number two, pick up your cross. Church, don't miss that this is the fact of Jesus saying this before he goes to the cross. This is not Mark just editing something in later after the fact. Jesus calls them to take up their cross, and they knew exactly what he was referring to. It was one of Rome's preferred methods of execution that everyone saw firsthand. It's when they had the person, like Jesus would later do, carry the crossbeam in which they would be hung on. And like Jesus, they would be shamed, mocked, hit, and spat upon. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Be my disciple. Pick up your cross. Number three, follow me. Isn't it interesting that one of the world's most popular current trends at this time, and even in our modern-day vernacular, is to have people follow us? And we have made ourselves and others a brand for people to follow, our name, image, and likeness. Jesus says, follow me. Not yourself, not influencers, not Rick, not Pastor Eric. Follow Jesus. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Now we come to the great paradox in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. You can have all the worldly possessions, church, and all that the world has to offer, and all the stuff the world says you need and can provide you with happiness in life, but in reality, in the end, you'll have nothing. You'll be bankrupt. You know, I used to work for some of the richest people in the world. One of my former clients passed away a few years ago, and I caught the story. His net worth at the time, they said, was over $5 billion. I was saddened. I was truly saddened to hear of his death. He was a super nice guy. And I don't know his stance with the Lord. I don't know if he was a Christian or not. I hope I see him again. But I do remember reading that and thinking about this passage and some others. And my question is, what now? All that money couldn't buy him one more second. And to him, now, all that stuff, it's meaningless. For we get back to the heart of the matter. It's a soul issue. It's an eternal issue. He speaks clearly in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Answer, nothing. Only the precious blood of Jesus can solve our real problems. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me 
and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus calls this generation adulterous and sinful. Adulterous and sinful. Unfaithful and full of sin. Why would we want to be aligned with the unfaithful instead of the faithful? The place full of sin versus the spotless lamb. The only way we can do this is to have our hearts focus and set on the things of God. Treasure that moth and rust can't destroy because the Bible says to those who are in Christ that this is not our home. We are just sojourners passing through. And in John 14, Jesus, our bridegroom, tells us that he goes to prepare a place for us in his Father's house. And he's coming back, church. And he will take us to him to be with him forever. You see, the story does not end here for Peter and the disciples. They continue to not understand. Peter fails more, even denying Christ three times. And they all scatter, as Jesus foretold. But be encouraged, church. Jesus comes back and restores Peter and the other disciples. And why? Because they're his. Because he holds them in his hands. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus today, he holds you in his hands. And there is nothing that you or anyone else can do that will change that. Because he is faithful. As I mentioned before, it all clicks after the resurrection and seeing the risen Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? What was the result of it all clicking? And like the blind man we read about early, earlier, them finally seeing clearly. The place where they ran away scared is now where they stood in the open and boldly proclaimed the gospel. Even when beaten, tortured, imprisoned, and for most of the disciples, martyred for their faith. They denied themselves. They took up their cross and followed Jesus. I hear it all the time, and I too am guilty most of my life of asking all the wrong questions, mainly concerning worldly things. But what if I started asking the right questions, questions that are focused on things that are above, like how can I make more disciples? How can I find more time to make an impact for Christ? And what if those things come at the cost of my own hobbies, my comfort, my position, my salary, my friends, or maybe a hole dug into my roof? Well, if I can see a paralytic get up and walk, well, what about to see the greater miracle of a hell-bound sinner who hears the gospel, repents, and turns to Christ? You see, the end of Mark's gospel, as with the other gospels, we see the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Like Peter and the other disciples, this is God's will for your life and for mine. And notice that it has no qualifiers, such as when you're financially stable, when you have a good house or a good job. No, it's just go right now. And he will be with us always to the end of the age because he says so and he is faithful. What a savior we have in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ and his precious blood on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that he is alive. We thank you for your word and for teaching us this morning. I pray that we would leave and be changed, that we would look to make an impact for your glory, for this hurting world, that we would keep our eyes and our hearts focused on things that are above. God, we love you. We need your help. We pray that you would be with us as you have promised. We wouldn't have any reservations, Lord, putting our full faith and heart and everything that we have into your hands, that we would not hold on to things tightly, that we would know they all come from you and they are all yours. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.